Hello, everyone. Welcome to a mental breakdown where we take a break from reality to talk about sports. I'm Bryce, a mental skills coach. I'm Liam. I'm working in research. And today we're talking about a sport I knew nothing about until I lived in Scotland for a year and a half. What is it, Liam? So we're going to talk a little bit about cricket. So it's a very, um, I guess, UK, uh, UK-based sport. It originates here. And yeah, it, it's been... Commonwealth, really. Yeah, well, Commonwealth, yeah. It's, it's been quite a challenge to try and describe it to an audience that doesn't really follow it. I'd probably say the best comparison is baseball. Would you say that? Absolutely. Baseball is basically based in cricket. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of cricket in a sh- kind of shorter format, which is interesting because baseball is quite like a long game anyway. Um, but but yeah, no, so cricket, it's 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 a good sport. It's, it's a sport that I play. I've played um, since I was six years old. And it's one of those love-hate games. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a weird sport because it's such an individually kind of challenging sport within that team environment. And so you can imagine if your team does well, but you as an individual don't do that well, it can get you can get quite a lot of cognitive dissonance alongside it so it becomes a challenge in that sort of sense definitely i knew nothing about cricket until i moved to skyland and moved in with you and if i hadn't moved in with you and had been someone else i probably still would know nothing about cricket <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. but what helped me learn a lot about it was using baseball to help inform the sport like instead of calling them wickets you call them outs and stuff like that like that helped me like translate that stuff in my head but what it seems like to me is a really great piss up and i really just want to go to like an ashes at lords or something and just get smashed all day that just sounds like the best time <laughs> well cricket's legendarily known as that kind of social sport i mean even players as players yourself uh the kind of highlight of the day is when you get off the field and you have a few beers with your teammates rather than actually playing itself but if you're <laughs> supporting you're watching it then it just it's one of those uh, usually especially in the uk if you're watching a, a big test match which is the longer format of the game did start at half 10 in the morning and it'd finish at about 6 or 7 p.m at night so your first pint is usually about 10 in the morning and it's however many you can fit in by the end of the day and <laughs> you can imagine what the atmosphere is like towards the end of the day so it's um it's a great thing as a spectator to go and watch so i'm pretty glad that uh that, that uh you kind of are aware of the sport now bryce yeah i've actually like been enjoying it a lot i actually like that it's like test crickets all day like that because like you can do other things and have it on and check back in and out and stuff and once you understand the sport you can basically watch highlights package and that's all you need to see yeah yeah definitely yeah like i think it's um one of the tv shows here does about like half an hour to an hour highlights packages and to be honest they're like the best thing to watch if you're trying to get into cricket because it's just the key highlights pretty much all the way through so it's great to kind of like um just get that kind of insight into to where the drama lies and what goes on really in those in those shorter kind of bits. What's kind of nice too is like it's still engrossing enough to watch every bowl because even those highlights there are things building building up to it that once you kind of pick up on some of the nuances of like how good bowlers bowl and how they're testing out the the batsman and how the batsman has to try and be careful and stuff it, it becomes really interesting. I think that's a good point about the nuances I think if you're someone who doesn't watch cricket and you try and watch cricket for the first time, there's so much random going on because yeah, no. of like the weird rules. And the hardest part is you don't even pick up on any of the like the terminology that are being used. Like you don't even understand what it means. Oh yeah, I know. You, you almost have to watch it with someone who, who's played or watched cricket before just to explain a little bit. Because yeah, as, as a neutral who hasn't seen it, it's definitely something where it's really hard to follow. And like you say, I guess it's hard to enjoy the the individual battles that go on. 
uh, or like the tactics that go on when you kind of don't really have too much of a grasp on the rules or what's going on. So, so yeah, it's th- those nuances are quite important, actually. Definitely. It's also, you mentioned it being hard to understand if like we were talking about that, like baseball is famously exactly like that. And like one of these days, I'm going to watch baseball with you so I can help you explain it, but you'll probably pick on it pretty quick being coming from cricket. But baseball is famously like that where my dad's told stories um, where he had friends from Germany who came over and never seen baseball. And he's trying to explain the rules of baseball and how he like, they just, it took an entire game before they finally were like, oh, that's what that means. <laughs> Well, we were talking about walk-offs, weren't we, last week, and and people like all the different like curveballs and stuff, and I think definitely something that I need to have a watch of before I get a grasp of it, to be honest. So speaking of curveballs, in baseball there's uh, breaking ball pitchers and fastball pitchers. That's very similar to cricket, where you have spin bowlers and speed bowlers. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I noticed watching this week, when Nathan Lyons bowling, it feels like the whole team is against the batsman because of how crowded it is, how much chirping there is. And then, and it's just, it just feels like it's a lot more, like it feels like everything's super on edge, even if he's not even close to you. Whereas speed bowlers, it feels like, you know, they're doing a 30 yard run up and everybody's 10 yards away from you. It feels like everything, it's you versus that guy rather than you versus the whole team. Whereas with spin bowlers, they're all in close. It just feels claustrophobic almost. It's, it's interesting you pick that up because I'd probably say, uh as someone who's facing a fast bowler, the the battle is really of them trying to kind of hurt you and trying to get you out through pure speed, through fear, through brute force almost. So it's very much a different challenge to facing a spin bowler who's trying to get you out through guile and through trying to outthink you. So it's definitely two kind of, obviously within the sport, it's two completely different skill sets, isn't it? Yeah, I think this would be a good time for us to go over a quick basics of cricket. Okay, so here's a bit of a Cricket 101 for you here. So, cricket is played between two teams, and each team has 11 players each. So it's played on a big field, and there is a 22-yard pitch in the middle that is two sets of wickets, in um, kind of at each end of this pitch. So wickets are kind of three stumps all sat next to each other, and yes, so there's two of them that are sat opposite to each other. So that's obviously a key part of the game, these wickets, and trying to protect them. And these so, are like bases in baseball, right? Yeah, basically bases, yeah. So so each team alternates between two main skills in cricket. So they either bat or they bowl. So the team batting, who bat in pairs, so there's two of the same team um, out there in the middle at each end of the wicket. They stand in front of the sticks in the ground, the wickets, and the bowling team take it in turns to throw the ball at these wickets. And it's the bowling, uh, the batter's team's job to hit the ball away. And trying to obviously protect those 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 stumps, those wickets. So if the batters hit this ball uh, and it goes out into the field, they can run in between the wickets. So if they hit it and they get to the other end, and if they swap, it's classed as one run. So there's usually a boundary line on the cricket field as well, um, to kind of like right at the edge of the, the whole field itself. And so if you hit this so hit the ball over the line without it bouncing, it's classed as six runs. And if you hit it uh, across the line after it's bounced, it's four runs. So if you hit a home run in six runs, and then like the equivalent of like a ground rule double in baseball is four runs. <laughs> there we go. Thanks for the translation, Bryce. And then, um, so at so at any given time, there's only eleven fielders, and then the two batsmen, right? Yeah, that's right. At, at any given time, and basically, it's the the batting team's job to try and score as many runs as possible in a set time. Uh, and it's the bowling team's job to try and get 
the other batsman out. So it's called out if you uh, like, like similar to baseball and out um, through either hitting the stumps, through catching it, similar to in baseball, uh, and a few other ways are a little bit too complicated to explain. And in the terminology, if you're watching, is they call that a wicket, right? Yeah, we call it a wicket, basically. An out, a wicket, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the roles are then reversed um, once all of the uh, the batting team have been out or once the, the set time has kind of expired and the bowling team take it in turns to bat and try and chase down the total runs that the other team got. So so that's kind of like a simple way to explain how cricket works. You were talking about the how, much, how long the batsman. It's either until they're all out, like in test cricket, or what is it, one-day innings, and then T20 where you get 20 overs, which is six balls, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the overs thing in cricket, um, all these different terminologies are quite difficult to uh, to comprehend. I'm, I'm sure. So, overs is six balls. So, each time you th- you throw or bowl the ball at the wicket, it's classed as one ball. So, an over is made up of six of these, and then usually in in the short format of cricket, you face either twenty overs like a T20 or fifty overs um, a team. And obviously the team, you get the most out of those two wins. Um, whereas in test cricket, it's a lot longer. So you're batting time. So it's um, five days long. And each team has two chances, two innings. So uh, it's, a, it's a lot longer in test cricket. You could kind of think of the um, overs as innings in baseball. In baseball, you get three outs an inning. And however long that takes to get those three outs is an inning. Except that in cricket, it's just you get six pitches, basically. Yeah, basically. Now. For anyone listening, the reason we're talking about cricket right now is because we're in the middle of the Ashes, which, as I understand it, is probably the oldest cricket event in the world. Yeah, I think 1882-83 is when the first Ashes was done. So it's, um, it's yeah, quite, quite an old thing. Um, it's a big thing, though, big thing, though, especially for, for us people in the UK and, um, and in England, because it, it's, it's kind of a bit about the ego, isn't it? So... Uh, it's widely known that um, cricket originated in England. Also, it's widely known that Australia was started to be populated with Westerners with some people who were convicts from England. So, you know, sent over um, because they'd done certain crimes and been kind of ex- expelled from the country almost. Um, and so we kind of took this sport of cricket over to the people that we'd expelled because we wanted someone to play the sport who we could easily beat. It was like that kind of bit of an ego boost, you know. You, you... It was, that's why it started, because it's thought you just <laughs> yeah. kick their ass easily. Exactly. You, I you, did you, not know that. You teach someone to do a sport that you're better at, then you're going to kind of kick their ass a lot, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> but then... It, it's... Can't say that about football, though. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. But less said about that, the better. Or really rugby. But it, it, it's, got to, it's got to a sad part now, because Australia, over the last 20, 30 years, even pushing back a bit further, actually potentially one of the world's best teams at the moment so we get our ass handed to us quite regularly by australia and makes you long for those heady 1883 days to be honest (laughs) it definitely seems like this current generation the ones who are 21 22 23 from australia are significantly better than the english well i think sometimes that comes down to the main sport so cricket is pretty much a main sport in australia you'd you'd say um they have their afl there which is obviously their their own kind of like country specific sport they have football they do call it soccer there so at least you can understand a bit better Bryce (laughs) and they have um obviously their rugby but cricket is kind of the sport that everyone gets up for it's the sport that everyone grows up playing in Australia and 
you'd probably say that's not the same here in England. Cricket traditionally here has been a very middle class sport, been a very, you know, private school. People who are quite posh will play cricket and then obviously because I guess it can be quite an expensive sport trying to buy all the equipment and stuff as well. So it kind of like forces almost people to 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 not take part if they don't have the money to buy the equipment and that sort of thing. And so Australia kind of really created this culture of people growing up on cricket, people getting really good at cricket and people kind of taking that further. Whereas you'd probably say we're, we're definitely dominated by football in this country, 100%. And what that's led to is, of course, Nis Ashes, England playing in Australia, and they're really struggling. And it's pretty much epitomized by Rory Burns' struggles. <laughs> yeah, it very much is. So with this Ashes, uh, I don't think anyone from the England side of things had that much hope it would go well but then obviously on the night before when it's about to happen we did our standard english thing of you know what because we're underdogs we might actually win this we might actually step up to the plate (laughs) every time every time every sport so what actually happened for listeners who actually don't know what happened is so rory burns decided it'd be really funny and really banterous to get out on the first ball of the whole day of the whole series oh yes that's going to be in highlight reels for like 40 years. Oh, I, t- I tell you what, that will be living in his dreams and his nightmares for the next 20 years. I can tell you that. He made a b- big mistake. The first ball, he uh, he stepped, he, he kind of got himself into a weird position. He got bowled, the ball hit the stumps. And from that point onwards, the series gone quite kind of downhill for him. So he's he got out really cheaply, obviously, on that first ball. He dropped a couple of catches um, in the next innings of some some of the key players, and then he uh, he got out really cheaply again. And I don't know if you saw from the last test, Bryce. He actually threw over through four runs. Yeah, for a five. Yeah, yeah, for five to get Steve Smith some runs. Who's the best batsman in the world? So he didn't really need any cheap runs. Um, so it seems to be that. Rory Burns has gone from mistake to mistake um, during this series, and you almost kind of feel sorry for him because you can see him kind of not really, not really wanting to be there at the moment. But I don't know who pulled him out the last time, but the first two times in the first innings he got pulled out were both by Mitchell Stark, and the second time he was trying to avoid Stark by batting from the second one and having Hamid actually open. He was so I was um, listening to a cricket um, a cricket analyst the other day. And they basically said that Rory Burns in his test career has not faced first, I think, four times. And so he's played, um, I think it's around about 25 tests. So that means out of 50 occasions up until um, up until this year, he's, he's faced the first ball, what, 45, 46 times. And he's now the, the, the next kind of... Um, the next few three innings that he's batted, or the last three innings since that first ball, he's batted, um, he's faced the ball second, which is a complete switch from his tactic, complete change from what he's used to. Um, and that's quite kind of noticeable because, like you say, you use that word hiding. I mean, if we can see that as a spectator, imagine what the uh, opposition are feeling like. It's kind of a mini win before the day started, isn't it, for them? For real, especially for Mitch Stark, because the first time he pulled him, he gave that look as he was running up past him to celebrate, like that the look that pretty much every bowler gives every batsman once they finally give him out. But it was, it's intimidating when you have a big fast bowler coming at you like that, and then they bowl you out and then they give you that look afterwards. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say Mitch Stark is like six foot four, six foot five. So it's not like he's a small man. <laughs> and, uh... He's an intense looking dude too. <laughs> yeah, he really is. Really is. So Rory did finally find some form in his fourth 
innings, but he was still out on only 34. And that brought his total runs up to 51 and in four innings from 126 balls faced. Yeah. So as an opener, so I think Rory Burns' average in test cricket, so the amount of runs he scores per time he bats, is around about 30, 35, I think it is. Yeah, I think it was uh, 33.4 or something like that when I looked, but that was probably after his, those two bad performances. Yeah, so that means, yeah, he'd, he'd score, or traditionally, if on any given day, he's he would score 32 runs at least um, each innings, whereas, yeah, only 54 and 4 suggests that he's kind of got himself in a bit of a hole. Yeah, on 126 balls. That's that's rough. Yeah. I don't think it helps that he's got a, a, a very strange technique. It's a technique that um, it seems to work for him, but it's not one that the coaches would teach you. Even even as an even as an unex, completely unexperienced, no knowledgeable person, you can tell it looks so much different. Oh, and yeah. It looks kind of uncomfortable, especially when his right foot steps across. Like I'm like, why? Like that feels. <laughs> wrong to me and i don't even know anything about the sport like it looks like his feet are all crossed up and like there's no sport in the world where your left foot should be inside of your right foot you know what i mean like they should never cross each other but he does it pretty much every time he's obviously got to a point where he's he's playing for england so he's obviously a certain standard so i think people have gone oh well it's working so let's kind of ignore it you know He's, he's scoring runs it doesn't really matter but then obviously now we're at this point where he's doing poorly and that's where all the focus is now. His technique's rubbish. He needs yeah, to change. And it changes quickly. Yeah, it, it, it's just like, it's, I mean, what, it's been two games and already Rory Burns has gone from being one of England's kind of openers that was a guarantee in the team to not even making it for the next game. So if you're Rory Burns and you have 51 and in four innings on 126 balls, how do you get past that in the future tests? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. I think cricket is a very tough sport purely because of the mental strain that you could put under, especially when you've made mistakes. So it's one of those sports where you can ruminate a lot. You can have one bad day and it will affect you mentally, you know, heading into the next few days. You'll be thinking about a mistake and, and almost your mindset switches from this is what I'll do to this is what I'm not to do. This is I'm, I'm trying to avoid doing this again. And it's quite a dangerous way to go so I'd probably try and change the way that Roy Burns thinking about those mistakes as in make them kind of a a learning piece rather than a ruminating piece um but but yeah it's it's a very very interesting question I'm sure it's one that he's probably thinking about a lot right now I mean this is assuming of course if he gets selected again which the coach's statements I read today were that he would select the same team again which makes me think he may get another opportunity yeah, it suggests that he might get one more. So when I was reading research, um, I was struggling to come up to find stuff that described exactly how you overcome errors other than some general concepts around how you react to them in the first place, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. it sounds like the first key, the keys is that first you have to acknowledge it in a positive way. Uh, see it as an opportunity to learn, which is what you talked about, trying to change it from something to ruminate on than something to learn. The second is then to identify the cause. And then there are three ways in which you can identify that. And that's whether it was internal or external, the stability. So whether or not it's going to happen again, which for Rory, it sounds like it's both kind of internal and external. It's kind of on a spectrum. 
Mm-hmm. And the stability means it's probably going to happen again because it's somewhat technique and it's about the specific bowler that he's probably going to face again. And then controllability, yeah. which is, are you able to prevent the error? Which he is because that's what he's supposed to do. And then third is just to adjust where necessary or refocus on the next opportunity. And so that's where he has to be now. He has to be able to stop ruminating. However, he's a f- whatever technique he uses to do that, which... You can do mindfulness, positive self-talk, remind yourself perspective, all these different things. Um, And then work on the technique or whatever it is, the physical limitations that prevent him from being able to handle his balls. I think that part he mentioned about being controllable or uncontrollable is probably the key aspect, I think, on on getting over mistakes. You need to kind of figure out whether it's something that you have a say over and if you change something then it will change the results or you need to figure out whether it's something you don't have a say over and you need to change your reaction to obviously um the the phenomenon or whatever we're talking about like if you go to uh was it nick pope who kicked his own stumps uh it was josh butler josh butler so you go to him and i think that's something that while it is controllable it's a freak accident right and like sometimes that just happens so you say this but Funnily enough, apparently this isn't the first time that the bowler, Jai Richardson, has got Josh Butler to stand on his stumps. <laughs> really? <laughs> this happened once before when uh, Josh Butler was playing in the Australian Domestic League. i got to be honest, though. Speaking of Jai Richardson, is that dude a psychopath? <laughs> he only psychopaths both cut holes in their shoes and then don't wear socks, which he was not, which he was doing. <laughs> like, who's not wearing socks when they're playing a sport in, what is it, 90-degree heat in the middle of Australian summer? Probably 99-degree yeah. heat. And then when he's when he's just walking, you know, back to his spot, he looks like he's angry at the world, like he wants to murder the, the batsman. <laughs> to be honest, I think that's a mentality you have to get in as a fast bowler. You're trying to like take that personal aspect out of it. You don't want to go, oh no, I might hurt this guy. You kind of have to objectify it and go. It's almost like the um, uh, the Michael Jordan mentality, isn't it, of trying to create that whole... Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Is it's, he is actually a psychopath? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But no, like, I, I actually, I disagree with you in a way about Butler. Yes, it was a freak accident, but it's everything to do with his technique and what he did. I still think it's something that he can control and he probably won't do that again. Well, apparently, yeah, in, in 112 test appearances, he's never done it. Something that, something around Yeah, that, that tells me, like, there's not too much wrong with his technique. It's just kind of a freak accident, right? Yeah, but, like, say, for example... In cricket, it's all about repetition and all about um, routines. So before each ball, you'll probably stand in the same place and um, you'll kind of know where your feet are because that's where kind of, I mean, as a cricketer, you, you practice this and you play in games. That repetition means that you almost don't need to look at where your feet are. You kind of know where they're going to be in, in comparison to everywhere else. So you know that inside out. So obviously Butler's done something different to mean that his feet are in a different position than what they are usually, and that's obviously caused his mistake. That's what that's what I think. Anyway. I mean, even if that's the case, then it it still generally means that his stuff is fine because it was just one freak accident out of a hundred tests. Oh yeah, yeah. I I think I think Butler will be fine. Like I think... this is this is like a three point shooter who has seven. You don't tell him to stop shooting. You tell him to keep shooting because their technique is fine. Like like uh, the playoff performance with the hot uh, Rockets from a few years ago when James Harden was on that team and they went over twenty seven for three. You're not going to tell him to stop shooting. You're going to tell him to keep shooting. That's true. I to be honest, I I don't think Butler's a worry, even though he might still be dropped. I think 
um, Rory Burns is that worry because, like we were talking about mistakes towards batting, but it's not his mistakes haven't just been um, haven't just been located in that domain. You know, he's made a mistake in his batting, and that's that's kind of meant he's made a mistake in his fielding and his catching. That's meant he's made a mistake in his his throwing. It seems to kind of be snowballing rather than just kind of staying in one aspect. So I'd probably say you know we have focused a lot on Rory Burns, but Josh Butler had dropped catches as well. Um, Hamid has Hamid's had decent fielding, but it's not like he's been a good batsman either. I think the most he's had what is eighteen or something. Yeah, around eighteen twenty. So he's been just as poor, if not. In fact, he may have even, that make him worse than Rory Burns. He just hasn't had gone out in the same spectacular ways. Uh, Ollie Pope has had just as bad of issues batting, where he's going out quickly. It's just he's not the leadoff, so it doesn't pop up as much. It just seems like there's a kind of fundamental issue with a lot of the English cricketers right now. It seems a fundamental mental issue for me. Obviously these are international sports people. There's not going to be too much wrong with their technique and they've obviously done something right to get them into the position where they're being selected for their country on one of the biggest kind of on the the biggest stages in cricket. For me I think it's that mentality. I mean Australia traditionally over the last 30 years has always been a very difficult place to go because of how fiery the the crowds are, the conditions of being, what, 35, 40 degree heat, um, when obviously we're used to a lot less than England. Even the pitch conditions, so obviously uh, in Australia with the heat, it makes it quite bouncy and flat in terms of, you know, um, where the ball hits and, and how that kind of moves from there. And it's quite like a different and quite a foreign thing what, than what you're used to in England. So I think all of these things kind of combine to make to put enough doubt in people's minds in their techniques and in their ability to deal with it. And so you see the likes of Ollie Pope going out and Hasib Hamid going out, and it you can tell that the there is that kind of mental side of the game that that might not be as up to scratch as what their technical side is. Uh, and, when was the last time England won in Australia? Um, uh, won a game or won a series? Because, won, won the Ashes. <laughs> um, I think it's 30 years, I think. 30 years? I thought yeah, I read so... that they won four of six Ashes in the middle 2000s. So for one of them, uh, so so basically, um, if you are the holder of the Ashes and the series ends level, you retain the Ashes. Ah, so they, they drew a couple times. So, yeah, so we've, we've drawn a couple of times in Australia um, to retain the Ashes, but I don't think we've won for a for a decent amount of years and that's because between the 90s and the early noughties like that australian side had about eight world-class stars and it was insane like growing up watching that it was like england would do well to compete never mind beat them sort of thing um whereas obviously now the disappointment is now that australia probably have less world superstars than they had a couple decades ago but yet we're still getting the same results um, especially in australia so for the listeners, it's important to note most of this discussion occurred before the Boxing Day test, but we're recording this section after the Boxing Day test. And in this test, they removed Rory Burns, but did not perform any better. Yes, so what England decided to do was one of the problems was we weren't scoring enough runs, so we replaced part of the uh, part of the batting lineup that wasn't doing well. So Rory Burns dropped out and uh, Ollie Pope dropped out, who was having a very similar a very similar series to Rory Burns, but the replacements did not do any better. Um, so we're now speaking after 
Australia have won the Ashes within, I think it was 13 days of cricket, which is very, very quickly. Um, and yeah, the replacements did exactly the same. So um, there seems to be kind of a systemic problem rather than it just being, you know, the, the personnel involved. Um, I, I don't know if you agree with that, Bryce. Uh, for sure. And some of it has to be down to the selection, right? Because you have a whole team of people, a lot of which aren't even playing, and the people you're bringing in are performing worse than the people who are already getting their absolute ass kicked. Well, the selection, you, you make an interesting point about the team selection, because when the whole squad was announced about two months before the series, I think I can speak for most English fans when he said it was quite underwhelming. The people selected were, were either safe bets or they were people who weren't playing well. So just to to example this, the two replacements who came in to for, for the test on Boxing Day were dropped earlier in the year for poor form. So to replace some batsmen who were in poor form in a team, we've called up players who were in poor form and got dropped. So that kind of suggests that there might be a disconnect between you know, the selectors and, and reality, I guess, is is what you could say, because we, we're not kind of making any risky plays or trying anything different to, to what has been done over the last year or two. Yeah, business as usual. And you, the last time you were in Australia, you pretty much made the same choices and you're getting the same results. Exactly. Same, same choices, same results. So then who's the one selecting these teams? So... It, it's it's an interesting situation. So usually in England, they, they have like a selector. So they name someone who's not a coach, not part of the coaching staff, whose pure job it is to you know go out and scout players and obviously work as part of a team with a scouting team. And then they select for each kind of test series or each kind of like competition. Um, but what they've decided to do, because England were in quite poor form, um, especially after last summer in England, um, they sacked the selector and they made the coach um, the sole selector so the coach um, was the only person who kind of had a say and obviously you can bring on opinions from the captain and people in the team but at the end of the day he had the final say and so I think for me most of the blame must lie at the person who selected the team which is the coach because we picked a team who that was like I mentioned very uninspiring not much different no risks and and like you say making the same mistakes before and getting exactly the same results well what's interesting is I think Football, and I guess in this case, it's cricket, obviously, but I think football is one of the only sports where the head coach or, or manager, if you will, usually makes this uh, the turn, the decisions around transfers and selections and things like that. Um, Chelsea obviously do it differently now, but in the NFL and every American sport, there's usually a GM who puts together what they want their roster to yes. look like, and then they hire a coach who can coach that roster the way they want it to be coached. Like there's the famous stuff in Moneyball where they built this team and the manager didn't believe the way it was constructed uh to be played together could work but then they forced him to play them together and it turns out it works so it's kind of one of those things where in uh, american sports you have this gm at the top with scouts who work with the whole team of people put together the team and construct it in a style or system that they want to work and they hire the coach that can coach that system yes yeah, so it's so i guess when that goes wrong you can either blame the gm or you can blame the coach can't you so it's either you know the, the selection's fault or the coach's fault for not doing good enough with the players um, whereas I think what England did was they, they decided it was the selectors fault rather than the coach's job. And it turns out that maybe both of them should have been sacked rather than just one of them. Yeah, maybe because it sounds like he didn't even make that much of a difference from the selector. So firing the selector didn't make much of a difference. It kind of reminds me of no. uh, Bill O'Brien with the Houston Texans where 
it was clear he wasn't a good coach and he wasn't didn't really get the NFL, but then they made him GM and his immediate decision was to trade two of their best players away. <laughs> I'll know if they uh, they traded DeAndre Hopkins away. I'll never know. I mean, just to give an example, England are missing spin bowlers in this one. So it's, it's something either with the coach or captain kind of broke mm-hmm. down in the selection committee situation. I think um, Australia hired a new one recently as well. Australia have tended to go for ex-players. So usually the the players um, who've played in the last 20 years or so become them, whereas England, for my time at least following England, they've tended to be a lot older heads that haven't necessarily played cricket or at least played for a long time. Um, so in itself that might have an, an effect because obviously with the game moving forward at a quite fast pace because of T20, you might be left behind if you've got quite like a, an oldish cricketer as your, as your selector. Yeah, see, my question then would be, like, uh, I, it would make sense to have advisors to help coaches and stuff like that, like coach, even uh, main man- head managers for national team sides in football or whatever mm. will have scouts and people to go watch the matches to help them select their team. So my question, I, I'm really curious to see how that selection, selector, selection committee type situation works in cricket um, and whether or not they have scouts, what the scouting staff is like, how they make the decisions, whether or not what, like just that whole, that whole chain could, could, could fall apart so easily just from simple miscommunication because it requires the selector to be on the same page as the captain who needs to be on the same page as the coach and the bowling coach and the batsman coach. And they all have to be on the same page with the scouts who are the ones who are going out and actually watching the players play to be able to identify what talents they want from what players for that position, if that makes sense. Like it's so easy for that to just fall apart rather than just have a team of scouts who are working under a single person. And the captain's position could be under threat as well, to be honest, in yeah. selection if you're not in good form. I think there's, there's too many variables that could go wrong in that sort of sense, isn't there, in cricket selection at the moment. Yeah. There's too much that has to go right for you to for you to get a, get a right selection. I think you're kind of putting it down to chance a bit, aren't you? Or you just have to have so much talent that it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, th- I think England England teams of old have done that before, yeah. That's kind of what it sounds like, is that they just have, even within the team culture, which has taken hits, it sounds like they were just so talented, none of that mattered. And now mm-hmm. everyone's... Now the either the talent level's not there or other teams have just gotten better. I think it's the mentality of it's worked before, so let's try it again. And then if you're playing in a game that's obviously constantly moving, it's never really going to work. You always kind of need to move forwards with things, don't you? God, that really sounds like American Ryder Cup stuff for a long time, where we dominated it for so long and they were just like, ah, it's fine. But then Europe dominated it for 20 years. Yeah, and then you, you kind of behind the curve. Which brings me to my next question. Is Nathan Lyon the cricket equivalent for the English that Ian Poulter is for American golf fans? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'd say no, purely because Nathan Lyon has a very good test average just in general. He, he's really good against England, but it's not like he drops off. So uh, I, I don't want to do Poulter too much of a disservice, but he definitely steps up his game for the Ryder Cup compared to kind of his normal kind of tournaments. Whereas you'd probably say when Nathan Lyon performs against England, it's probably at a similar level as to what he's performing against against other teams. Um, but he is a little bit of kryptonite, especially to some of our batsmen. Yeah, I was thinking less about like their careers and more just like how this past Ryder Cup, Ian Poulter did not play well. He still won his singles match, of course, but he played pretty poorly throughout the team events. And it was sort of satisfying 
to watch him get beat up a little <laughs> bit. Would it, I mean, and I imagine as an English fan watching last uh, the last Ashes when he dropped the wicket that would have prevented Ben Stokes' heroics. That must have been unbelievably satisfying. I think it was satisfying because we're very used to Nathan Lyon being really good against us. <laughs> it's one of those where you see you've seen him in the team lineup. You've seen him like warming up to bowl and you're thinking here we go again do you know <laughs> he's gonna get another like four or five wickets and we're gonna struggle um so it was satisfying last year because i'd probably argue at least for five years probably the first time he's not been very good against us i mean genuinely he's always always stepped up his game against us so it was satisfying to see that moment last year yeah that definitely sounds like the way like this is probably the first Ryder cup england polters ever like had a losing record in. yeah yeah that's true that's true of course he still won his singles because that's what he does he wins match play and then finally i've heard rumors that spin bowlers aren't real bowlers how do you as a supposed spin bowler feel about that um aren't real bowlers um hey we can get angry like the rest of us we just can't kind of <laughs> we just can't put it into actual like uh aggression when bowling um hey it's a skill it's a skill that that fast bowlers can't really do i'll claim my other question is is ollie robinson um a spin bowler or like a fast bowler because he was spin bowling the other day <laughs> okay so that annoyed me so much right so they've said that there's since the last ashes four years ago there's been this big plan in place to make sure that we are more competitive and make sure that you know we wouldn't head into any embarrassing situations than what happens our, our big fast bowler ball spin oh i'm glad that was when it was like 5 a.m and yeah. so i wasn't watching that I just had to wake up with photos of him in sunglasses bowling off spin. Yeah, Joe Root this year is actually has more wickets taken than Stuart Broad. <laughs> I didn't actually know that. It's like it's something like fifty-one to forty-seven. <laughs> That's crazy. To be fair though, Joe Root used to be a bowler when he was a kid. He used to be more of like a frontline bowler, and you can see that when he bowls. So Joe Root is actually okay. Yeah, but having more than who's supposed to be your your wicket taker is. No, that's a problem. I was reading something actually that said it's kind of unfair on Joe Root to ask him to play that because he's the captain. He's also one of our main batsmen and he's also now bowling 20 overs a day. There's absolutely no kind of mental break for him during a day. Right. There's no kind of time for him to be able to kind of like focus on one or the other. It was a really good article because it was just basically saying, you know, you're going to burn Joe Root out and then we're not going to get the best Joe Root for batting, which is what he's best at. That stat does obviously shows kind of our lack of a uh, lack of forward thinking, though. So then, what do you think is the solution for the rest of this Ashes? They're limited in selection, obviously, because they've selected the guys they've selected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I've been talking to a few of my friends about this, and we've both been kind of stuck as to say what the solution is because of how limited our selection was to begin with. I mean, so the two backup batsmen in the squad, Bryce, were both dropped for poor form last summer. Uh, it's Johnny Fairstow and who was the other one? Zach Crawley. Okay. So they both dropped for poor form. So then uh, we rely... So the idea is that do we change the batsmen that we have who are in poor form for batsmen who were dropped because they were in poor form? It's it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it, at the moment? Do you know, you, you've got underperforming players playing but, and then under underperforming players waiting in the wings to play. I, I couldn't tell you one definitive answer. I think the batting, I think you're right, though. There's been a lot of focus on the bowling. But at the end of the day, in cricket, you need to score enough runs for your bowlers to do something with. 
and we haven't been doing that. Yeah, it'd be one thing if they were losing like 450 to 350 or something like that, but they're getting beat by 300. Yeah, exactly. It's not just one or the other. Exactly. So I think something has to be done, whether it's a change in tactic um, or it's a change in personnel. Something needs to be changed, I think, in, um, in the batting. I think mentality-wise, mentality is the big thing for me. It definitely seems like every single batsman goes out just to be super defensive. And what that means is they're, they get so defensive that, and they've been, uh, and they'll see, you know, whoever is bowling Richardson, Stark, Lyon, whoever will be coming close to wickets, close to wickets. So they reach further and further out, but they're not actually going for anything. They're just trying to protect it. Like almost every edge that they've got so far has been them trying to defend a ball that's not even close to the wicket. Yeah, it seems to be that the players have been kind of so the the term that they use in cricket is getting getting into your shell. So they've been so focused on survival that you kind of what you allow is for the other person to start trying to execute certain plans and try things differently rather than you not not letting them settle and you kind of taking a fight to them and trying to put them off. They're kind of given free reign at the moment to try anything and obviously if you've got an international bowler who can try anything to you, something is likely to work at some point. So what's the technique? Like, what's the technique that you change? Like, if, if you're their sports psychologist, um, I think I have some ideas, but what if you're their sports psychologist? What do you do to try and get them so more aggressive? quite a few, especially in England's middle order, a batsman who uh, are naturally aggressive or who, are, who do kind of score at quite a quick rate. And you've seen the way that they get out, like defensively prodding for it, and and they, they've been getting out in ways that they don't usually do. So I think as a sports psychologist, I think you'd have to try and get them rooted in the 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 routines that have got them to where they are, and the tactics that have got them to where they are right now, rather than to tr- try and draw them away from this kind of. Um, it's almost. I, I know we've talked about this a lot off air. It's almost about the, the challenge threat mentality, isn't it, Bryce? In terms of if you see this Australian, these Australian conditions as a way to challenge the way that you play and a, a way to to really take it to some of the best players in the world, then I think that will make a difference compared to people under that threat of the hostile Australian environment. I think that's kind of one of the main things. That's almost exactly what I was thinking, is if I'm their sports psychologist and it's identified that they're just being too passive and they need to be more aggressive at the uh, when they're you know in their crease, I, I would use a bunch of the self-talk stuff I did research on, um, trying to challenge them, trying to make them feel like, you know, trying to step up a little bit. Because one of the things I've noticed is like, when even, even when England's bowling, um, even, or even in the, like early on in the test, when like they, they're still in it, they are quiet the whole team is quiet they're not chirping they're not they, they're not looking at them aggressively they're not you know but when australia is bowling it's constant chirp it's constant talking shit it's constantly getting in their face and challenging them like i was talking about mitchell stark when he gets rory burns out and he gives him that look like how intimidating that is and how like jai richardson even when he misses is still staring you down like he just shot on his dog or something like he's he wants to kill you even when he's not getting you out right away and so it's just like you can see there's this much higher intensity among Australia and England just feel like they're out there. And I, if I'm their sports psychologist, I'd be doing all kinds of team talks about getting a more positive attitude, more talk, more 
more confidence into the team because that's what it feels like. Even if you lose, wouldn't you rather lose going down swinging than just trying to protect something? Exactly. And I think the perfect perfect example of what you're talking about is Ollie Robinson. So he has a, a reputation for being a big talker. So someone who very much like in the heat of the moment, he'll be given... Like Martin Slabashane? Yeah, yeah. He'll be given verbals to the to the other batsmen. It's what gets him fired up. It's what kind of works for him. And he, yeah, he's kind of got that reputation as, as someone who gets quite aggressive on a field. And you look at him play in Australia right now and he's as silent as a mouse. He's very much not the Ollie Robinson that you kind of have heard about and that you know. And so it's it kind of epitomises England. We've, we've kind of stepped away from what naturally works for us. So I think that's what I'd do, yeah. i just get in their face a bit, you know? It just sounds like... Uh, it also sounds like Joe Root isn't that kind of captain. But maybe somebody like Ben Stokes would be. I don't know. Potentially, but then... I don't know... <laughs> I don't know whether Ben Stokes had the temperament to be a captain, though. I mean, we've we've had that before with someone called Andrew Flintoff, who was that figure, who that inspirational figure. But when it came to be a captain, they didn't have the temperament or the uh, or the nous. From what I was reading, the rumor is that that's what Ben Stokes wants is to be the next captain. Interesting to see if it is. I mean, he holds the respect of everyone in the dressing room. So I mean, he's out there right now, basically playing on one leg, doing everything he can. That's true. That's true. He's, he's kind of like that quintessential kind of lead by example type. It's just whether that, um, whether that kind of translates into a general leader, leader role. So, I mean, I guess that means we've covered cricket one one. Ashes currently did a pretty good evaluation of the England squad. That was a nice break, wasn't it, Liam? It was. It was. We've um, we've managed to get through quite a bit about cricket and uh, even uh, learned a little bit about the selection committee as well. Probably a little cathartic for you too. Um, I guess so. I guess so. I'm. I'm just. I, I feel like the the next match is what on the fourth of January. I know I watch it because I'm a cricket fan, but I'm just not looking forward to it. <laughs> it's just yeah, you're you're. It's it's the depth of like a tanking sports team. Which <laughs> speaking of tanking teams, our next pod's going to be at the NFL playoffs. Yes, I'm quite excited for that. My uh, my team, the Rams, are looking pretty hot into the playoffs. Looking forward to it. Yeah, your team that you selected out of hat. It wasn't out of a hat, actually. It's because um, Cooper Cup is <laughs> Cooper Cup is the best football player in the world. It might as well have been out of hat. You randomly got him on your fantasy team, and he did well for you. That's I'm yeah. Sorry, I actually love Stan Kroenke. <laughs> oh God! Shout out <laughs> Arsenal fans. <laughs> All right, uh, so we're going to do our next podcast, Me and Phil Playoffs. We're going to do a pre-playoffs, a post-playoffs, pre-Super Bowl, and then a post-Super Bowl overall NFL season breakdown afterwards. Um, look for the first of those to be the week of January 9th, just before the playoffs start, but after they've been established on who's in. Uh, thanks for listening.